0: Welcome to Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Yomi with modern-day sages of the Torah and the world. I'm Natanel Zeluz On today's episode, bounty, blessings, and bridging the gap between us and our food.
1: We do interact with all of these other species, whether it's the lettuce itself or, you know, the insects that would want to eat the lettuce if the farmer weren't protecting the lettuce, the soil microbes that actually enliven the soil such that the lettuce can grow. So we actually, as people who eat, we are in touch with them, but when we don't grow our own food, we actually, it's so obscured, the effects of our actions come as a surprise to us.
0: Many consider the sixth chapter of Barakhot which mainly deals with the laws of blessings on food, and particularly the growable kind, to be the most difficult chapter in the tractate. This is probably because we as a society are so far removed, whether in time or space, from the agricultural economy assumed in the chapter, and, more pertinently, from the source of the food we eat. Our hyperconnected modern economy allows us to nourish our bodies with food that was created across the world just days before, with ingredients we can barely pronounce by people whom we will never meet. Joining us today to teach us how we can begin to bridge this gaping void is Jana Stiller, who writes about, teaches, and lives the Jewish values of ethical and earth-conscious eating. One of the first of a growing number of Jewish women farmers, Janna serves as farm director at Adama Farm in Falls Village, Connecticut, where she leads a crew of participants in the Adama Fellowship while maintaining the fields as a resonant learning space for visitors. She teaches classes on practical farming and gardening skills, as well as classes that explore the big picture systems policies and issues that shape what we eat and how it is grown. Jana represents the Jewish nonprofit Hazon as a member of the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition and the National Young Farmers Coalition. Jana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. The chapter starts with the question of how do we know that we need to make blessings on food? to thank God for allowing us to enjoy the world that God made. And the Talmud uses pretty strong language, saying that eating without making a blessing is like stealing from the temple. Whether one interprets that as a technical halakhic obligation, or a more general imperative to be aware of where one's food comes from, it seems all the more relevant now, when most of us are so separated from the source of our nourishment. And it must be so different when you're actually working on, and in your case, running a farm and actually growing food from start to finish. How has your relationship with food and your understanding of the growing process changed since you started working and in particular at Adama?
1: Yeah, I think it's changed uh, quite dramatically. I know I'm uh, remembering back to the first meal I ever made myself from food I had grown. And that was about 16, 17 years ago now. Uh I was interning on a farm in Illinois and I wasn't much of a cook. But I had taken some carrots and some tomatoes and some kale that I'd harvested. I don't think I'd known really what kale was before, Um, (laughs) you know, maybe the week before that. And I put them all in a pan and heated them up and I ate it. And I thought I had like created this perfect recipe that no one had ever had before. No one knew if you combine tomatoes, kale and carrots that it would taste like magic. (laughs) Um, And I I later realized that it it had to do with the fact that the things I was putting together into the pan weren't objects that I would purchased, weren't things I'd read on a list from a recipe and then decided to combine together. They were living things that I had interacted with and it completely changed my experience of it and that change continues till today with the experience of eating food that I've grown.
0: Wow, that must be a really powerful experience. Has that relationship evolved more since you started working at at Adama?
1: Yeah, I think something wonderful at Adama is that I get to spend a lot of time in community and I get to actually witness a lot of people have that same experience for the first time. We welcome participants in our fellowship program onto the farm. We have two or three cohorts a year, so 10 to 15 young people joining us for two or three months at a time and many of them are having that same experience for the first time and so i don't you know i could kind of get like just in a regular rut like oh yeah you know i stick a, a spout into the trunk of a maple tree and sugar water comes out obviously i've done it every year for a while but instead every year i watch people put a spout into the bark of a tree and watch Um, delicious liquid come out and like just completely, you know, have their brain chemistry changed by it. And so it keeps it really alive for me.
0: Oh, that's great. I love finding the connections between, you know, real life experience and the Talmud. So the Talmud actually jumps right from that discussion about blessings to a rather strange argument between two sages, whether there is an obligation from the Torah to work for a living and specifically to work the land. The Talmud decides in favor of the opinion that there is an obligation, which makes sense because at the time, Jews had already been farming or raising livestock since Abraham and Sarah and would continue to grow their own food for centuries. And yet, hundreds of years removed from a primarily agricultural global economy, so few of us Jews actually do that. What do you think we as a people are missing since we've moved away from that intimate relationship with the earth?
1: Well, I know that working every day as a farmer allows me to be in relationship with other species, not just humans that's something I definitely find really distinct when I go into a city and feel like, "Oh wow, just really humans are the main main other you know others that I'm interacting with um, and I think that agriculture in particular, as different from going for a hike in the woods or just being outside in general, really requires that you well you could partner with other species you could also see them as adversaries to tame or domesticate there are different approaches but you really do have to intersect with other species and be affected by them you have to leave yourself open and vulnerable to be affected by the lives of species other than our own so for me Some of the things that come of that are really a shift in time, right? Like the life cycle of the, specifically the annual plants. So annuals, meaning plants that don't survive through the winter. So the vegetable species that we work with are annuals and they're just, they have a very specific time cycle. And so getting really in tune with those is something that I find, yeah, changes my own relationship Give, gives me some sense of that there are other cycles and um, scales functioning out there and just changes your perspective to work with plants and and other animals. And then I think another thing that really we're seeing playing out right now is how surprising a lot of the news about climate change is. I really think a lot of us are, and so many people are are really unable to even believe what the science is telling us around climate change. And a lot of that I think has to do with how separated we are from our food sources and from the processes that require us to interact with other species. So anyone who's working with the land can really see actually climate change play out in in real time and and when we're not required to do that because our food sort of comes to us without those interactions, it it comes as as a big surprise and something that is hard to grapple with in a different way.
0: What are you at Adama and Hazon more broadly doing to repair the relationship or to change it, to rebuild it?
1: One thing is just welcoming people onto the land. I, we often experience that it's quite uncomfortable for people to to step onto the farm and take some courage and some, some real motivation for people to step out of their wage-earning lives and take the time to learn how food is grown, which is really what we do in the Adama Fellowship. People come for a few months at a time. And really, mo- most people who join us in the fellowship are not there to become farmers they're not there as a farmer training program they're there to build community to experience jewish life on the land and so one thing that we can do is not only teach them but also specifically welcome them and help them find ways of sort of powering through that discomfort whether it's Adama fellows or folks visiting us through at the isabella friedman jewish retreat center or, or, you know, Chazon more broadly, on a national scale, is working to develop curriculum and help Jewish institutions everywhere to kind of make those connections.
0: So on the next page, the Talmud talks about the intention of the grower as essential to determining the blessing on that food. For example, there is a discussion about what blessing to make on hearts of palm because in the times of the Talmud, date palms were almost always not planted with the primary intention of harvesting their hearts. How does intention play into your mission and your day-to-day routine at Adama?
1: Really hugely. I think as a farmer, you're always making decisions in the moment about how you want to approach a challenge. For me, part of it is like really, for organic farmers, we talk about you feed the soil, not the crop. So it's really about figuring out how to create healthy conditions so that plants can grow. And so a lot of that really is about figuring out what's the environment that I want to create for these plants so that they'll grow well. And I think that's true of our programming as well. There's not a clear rubric for, you know, how do you make someone feel comfortable on a farm when they've, you know, maybe been alienated from from the land or or it's a new experience for them. How do you bring that sort of intention, what health looks like and and bring it about in those small decisions that you make throughout the day.
0: While the chapter focuses more on the trees and the forest, it is still an interesting case study of the intersection between agriculture and law. One example, because one needs to eat an olive-sized amount of food in order to be obligated in a blessing after eating, The changing average size of an olive over time also changes the volume of food one needs to eat to be obligated. You've written about the impact of big picture policy on agriculture, especially small and community-supported farms like Adama. What policy changes have affected you recently and what new changes are you fighting for?
1: Great question. I'm going to try and encapsulate it in a brief answer. There are lots of federal policies, state policies, and local policies that impact what we end up eating and on the federal level the foods that are healthiest for us are often the least accessible or most expensive and there are a lot of federal policies that actually artificially decrease the prices of some of those less healthy foods like specifically you know highly processed corn and also meats that are um, where the animals are fed those grains and so there are also federal policies that really incentivize and hold up sustainable approaches to agriculture, regenerative approaches to agriculture. Some of those programs that we benefit from include the EQIP program, the Conservation Stewardship Program. There, For example, we just received some money through federal funding to host a workshop and via that workshop to um, hire a permaculture consultant for a tree planting project that we're working on. Our commercial kitchen where we make our sauerkraut and pickles was all funded through a state grant. So there are these funding sources for farms like ours, but they're a very small piece of federal funding for agriculture. So I am, and Chazon and Adamar are very highly engaged in working toward, you know, communicating to elected officials, people who make decisions about the benefits of climate smart agriculture, for example, whether it's through incentives or research into carbon sequestration and strategies of farming that can store carbon in the soil, um, whether it's technical assistance for farmers to be able to, you know, put into place practices that we know are uh, address both the emissions caused by agriculture and also that allow farms to adapt to our changing climate. There are programs out there to support soil health and ecosystem health, um, and in particular, doing that work with a racial equity lens and thinking about the history of racism in the food system, and also thinking about equity in the food system. There's a lot there, I could, I could go on and on. And I think what's important is that there have been a lot of really effective advocates on behalf of reform in the food system. And I think you know, the more we are able to articulate what an alternative model of farming might look like, the more we actually make headway toward creating those systems.
0: Just in spirit of the, you know, argumentative style of the Talmud, do you feel like there's kind of like an us versus them mentality with small farms and big farms and and big kind of food industry in general?
1: I do think it's more complicated, and I feel really always surprised and amazed at The ways that farmers no matter their approach to soil health or whatever it is desire to talk to each other and learn from each other so maybe when battling it out over um, who gets subsidies for what in the farm bill maybe yes a bit more of an us versus them mentality but also in practice you know, there, there's not a, a, a dark, thick line between conventional agriculture and organic agriculture. There are plenty of incredible farmers that are far from organic, but are figuring out what steps they can take to mitigate climate change, to you know, address whether it's soil erosion or or whatever the whatever the issue is, and some really creative solutions that might be far in between the two poles that you might think of. You know. Adama with our uber-sustainable practices on the one hand and, you know, a giant monoculture. There's just so much gray area in between and people doing really, I mean, I think there's just a lot of incredible innovation happening right now and in, in agriculture and in figuring out how to address the current moment that we're in.
0: So one of the laws that comes up in this chapter is the prohibition of kilayim or hybridization of produce. It poses a challenge to the human creativity that is so essential to sustainable farming and food production. In what ways are you able to be creative in your farming and gardening?
1: I think there are, in some ways, maybe there are two different kinds of creative in my mind. So I remember back that that very first internship I had on a farm, I remember telling my friend, who had been farming for a lot longer than I had, like that I was feeling this certain rigidity of working on the farm and feeling like I missed poetry and a, a certain version of creativity and I remember her just looking at me and saying is there anything more creative than you're doing by creating food from not food <laughs> where it didn't exist before and um, that still resonates in my mind and, and I think for me especially at Adema, I'm lucky to have both so song humor we uh, make a lot of silly skits at Adema. sort of just a part of deep part of our culture there, like there, there is a lot of, yeah, a lot of opportunity for poetry and that kind of wide-open artistic creativity. And then there's also just the creativity of figuring out how to, you know coax food out of the land in ways that are um, in concert with everything else that's happening in the bioregion. So I think for me, a lot of that comes from really understanding as deeply as I can the soil and the, the soil food web, which really just refers to the idea that there's this, the healthier the life in the soil is, um, the healthier your plants will be. And then from that kind of deeply ingrained sense, then those creative decisions of when and how will you plant your cover crops, your vegetables, your perennials, Um, how will you intercrop or reduce tillage or make space for pollinators? These kinds of decisions that um, you make when managing a farm kind of come from that sort of desire to create a a healthy ecosystem in the soil. And so, yeah, there's a lot of room for sort of like thinking through different strategies once that baseline is, is pretty well ingrained
0: speaking of creativity, it seems like the rabbis used quite a bit of it to think about the botanical aspects of food, like when they call honey the mere sweat of dates, or when they launch into complicated debates over whether the skin is considered part of a fruit or not. It made me wonder how much exposure they had to the food science of the day, and how much scientific consensus mattered to them. As a farmer, would you consider farming more science or an art, and which aspect do you connect? more personally?
1: Yeah, I couldn't choose. I really consider it both so much. There's this quote I really like from The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, where he says, for nitrates are not the land nor phosphates, and the length of fiber in the cotton is not the land. I love that that quote, and, and if folks have gardened before, you know that um, nitrogen and phosphorus, these are two really important nutrients that you need to make sure are in the soil in order to grow healthy crops. Um, and a conventional approach to agriculture really analyzes, again, in this reductionist way, okay, do we have the exact right amount of um, NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, um, and and feeds things that way. And I think what Steinbeck is trying to get at there is that there's, something much more there but but you can't define it in this super clear way and I find that so much of our Jewish tradition also kind of gets around this idea of like and and I think really what it comes down to what it is what the other thing is that's not the NPK is the interconnectivity of the life that's in the soil uh or in the soil and in the everywhere (laughs) so that said Yeah, I guess my answer to your question is really that it's so much both. And for me personally, I connect to both. I do think the science is really important. I think that we've learned a lot as a a species about how we can grow food with minimal impacts and with high yields. And I think that with increasing populations, we need to only do that more. And I don't think that ignoring the science will get us there. And I also think that if we reduce things to just the science that we know of, I mean, for example, in in agriculture, one of the emerging subjects of study is really about the relationship between mycorrhizal fungi and plant roots. So mycorrhizal fungi are fungi that live in symbiotic relationship with the roots of plants. Um, And what we've learned is that plants actually offer a high percentage of the sugars they manufacture through photosynthesis to these mycorrhizal fungi and in exchange the reason that they do that is actually because the fungi offer back nutrients that they' they have greater access to they're just they have a lot more surface area in the soil and they, they can access nutrients and water that the plant roots can't necessarily and so there's this trade happening so this is actually a really new emergent area of study but if you look at ancient biblical agricultural, techniques, a lot of them actually foster relationships with mycorrhizal fungi. The whole concept of fallowing land of of Shemitah um, is is a concept that really um, allows for breaks in the, the tillage of the soil which one of the now revealed benefits of that kind of practice is about fostering mycorrhizal fungi, or also, you know, nitrogen fixation through legumes, which um, would have, you know, potentially grown up as weeds, or just the increase in organic matter in the soil from that you gain from fallowing. So there's these kinds of things that we now have scientific ways of of describing, um, but doesn't mean that people didn't didn't know them. And in the same way, yeah, I think there's A lot there yeah there's a lot there to explore there are a lot of lines between what is science and what is art and what is spiritual and what is what's jewish law and and each of those pieces that actually are less separate from one another than we might think
0: as a farmer are there certain things that are not acknowledged in uh the brachot the blessings that we should be acknowledging what blessings are we not reciting on food
1: I guess part of me is like, well, who am I to say? But I, I, would, I would love for there to be, well, okay, I, I make up my own blessings for um, certain things that I don't have fixed blessings for I me. Mean, people ask me all the time, what's the blessing over um, putting a seed in the soil? Or um, you may have gleaned from this conversation that I have a lot of passion for soil microbes so, um, you know, some specific, specific <laughs> brachot for the soil microbes. I do feel lucky to live in a Jewish community where we have, you know, we have a lot of wisdom around the brachot, and we also have a lot of, yeah, we we have a very alive Jewish community that that makes up our own brachot when we need them. That's
0: beautiful, Janice Seller, Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleaved on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to our podcast, and while you're at it, leave a review. We'd love to know what you think. Special thanks to our executive producer, Adina Karp.